Today, we learn about another judge. We turn to the book of Judges, which is the seventh book in the Old Testament. It is between Joshua and Ruth. Some judges were noted for years of honoring God. Jephthah was remembered for the vow he made before his battle with the Ammonites. We will first read Judges 11, verse 1 through 6. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Now in the same chapter, we go to verse 14 through 40. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the desert to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the desert, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, Let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his men and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his men into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, had driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God Shemosh has given you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with him? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Arur, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide. To dispute this day between the Israelites and Ammonites. 
The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He devastated twenty towns from Arur to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you gave your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you and your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. And now we go to chapter 12, verse 7. Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the town of Gilead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time of worship, for this time of singing praise to you, of, of telling the gospel story, of hearing your story, for times of prayer and for times of fellowship. Lord, may this time shape us and form us more and more into the people you're calling us to be. And Lord, this day... The scripture story is a hard one. So Lord, I pray that the words will cut, that will come out of my mouth, may they be your words and not mine. Pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Jephthah's story. It's a hard one. As a father, I read it and I don't really understand it. Jephthah's story begins in chapter 10. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, 
and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. God allows the Ammonites to conquer Israel because Israel is discovering more and more and more gods to worship alongside him. And the consequences are that that these gods, God's going to allow them to make life miserable for Israel. But it helps us to know a little bit more about some of these gods to understand this vow that Jephthah makes. So you get Baal. Baal's the most powerful Canaanite god that there is. He's defeated all the other gods, especially the god of the sea and the god of storms. Canaanites believe that he even defeated death itself. And that's played out every year as, as Baal leaves and then he comes back. And when he comes back, he brings the rains and, and he, brings, he brings fertility and he brings life. He renews the earth's fertility so that the people will have the, the food and, and the life that they need. Now Asherah is Baal's mistress. And she was worshipped in the, in the trees and they would create poles out of these trees to, to worship. Now Baal worshippers would, would do everything they could to, to, to get him on their side. They would offer all kinds of sacrifices. And in really hard times, they would even offer their children as sacrifices. Normally they were sheep and bulls, but... But when times get really hard, you have to give what's precious to you. And that would be their children. Another important god is Shemesh. He's a war god. He demanded child sacrifice. He demanded the firstborn, the male firstborn, to be sacrificed to him. These are the gods that Israel is now worshiping alongside Yahweh, their God. And when you start meddling and playing around with these other gods, it's going to shape how you think about your own God. Now, Jephthah is introduced as a mighty warrior. And, and, and you have hope because you go, wow, the last judge who's, who's, who's introduced as a mighty warrior is Othniel. And, and Othniel, he, he, he was a mighty warrior. He was strong. He was, he was from the line of Caleb. And Caleb was this faithful follower of God who, who when, when Israel was scared to go into the land, Caleb and Joshua said, we got to trust God. Now they don't. They end up 40 years. But, but Caleb, he's there with Joshua, leads Israel conquers the people mostly and Othniel marries into his family and he's faithful as well but then comes the next part Jephthah is also the son of a female slave concubine and Jephthah also has has brothers from his father's real wives and these brothers want nothing to do with him. They kick him out. 
And he gathers around them in the Hebrew scoundrels. So now we're starting to hear echoes of Abimelech, who also was kicked out by his brothers, who also gathered a reckless band of scoundrels around himself. And like Abimelech, Jephthah becomes mighty, powerful. Now Abimelech had to buy his followers. Jephthah gathers them around. He's a natural leader as well. And he becomes so powerful and so fierce as a warrior that when the elders in Gilead are tired of being oppressed by the Ammonites, they turn to Jephthah and they say, please, please come back. Lead us in battle against the the Ammonites. Deliver us from our enemies. Jephthah agrees because they agree to make him their leader afterwards. But Jephthah's not dumb. He says, okay, we're going to go to Mizpah and you're going to make that promise a second time in the Lord's presence so that you can't turn back from your promise. And the elders agree, and this is what they do. Now, Jephthah's a smart. He recognizes that diplomacy, if you don't have to fight, why fight? So he sends a a message to the king of the Ammonites and asking why did they attack Israel? Reply comes back saying, hey, it used to be our land before you guys showed up. And Jephthah gives him a bit of a history lesson and says, no, no, that's not right. Now you guys are fudging history here because when we were coming here to claim this land, we left you alone. Now it was the Amorites who owned this land and they fought us first so then God gave us the power and gave us this land and allowed us to defeat them and settle here. Now that's been 300 years so you know what? This is our land. Our God gave it to us. Uh, You be satisfied with the land that your God, Shemosh, gave you. So Jephthah is doing something that we don't automatically realize He's now making this a battle between gods. He's kind of taunting them in a way, which probably wasn't smart. But he's saying, my God's bigger and more powerful than your God. So deal with it. While they do deal with it, they go up against Israel. And here, God steps in again. And we read, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And these are huge words of hope. Because it shows that God doesn't give up on his people. He gives Jephthah his spirit to go up against Israel's enemies. God again remains faithful to the covenant that he's made with his people. To be their God that they will be his people. He won't abandon them. He'll allow them for a period of time to suffer the consequences of their actions, but he will never abandon them and give up on them. 
even though they keep turning back to idols. Now, Jephthah doesn't quite trust, doesn't quite trust God's word. Doesn't trust the spirit to stay with him. So he makes a deal with God. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of my, the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. That's not good enough for him. He then goes on and says, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Jephthah's trying to buy God's favor. He doesn't quite trust that God's love is unconditional. That God's promise is secure. He doesn't trust God's commitment to his covenants with Israel to be their God. That Israel will always be his people. He doesn't realize he doesn't have to buy God's favor. Israel's forgotten because they've been so influenced by the other gods, the other idols, that all God desires is a, a relationship rooted in trust and faith, not in fear and manipulation. You don't have to bribe God. And God blesses Jephthah and Israel and they chase those Ammonites from Israel back into their own country to lick their wounds and to reflect on just how powerful their gods really are and to realize just how powerful Israel's God really is. There's no doubt Who's God of gods? And that's Israel's God. Jephthah and the army, they head down the road uh, to enjoy some time with peace and peace with family and friends. And uh, knowing military guys, they're probably walking along and they're boasting and they're laughing and they're joking and everything else. And they're all saying, hey, did you see how many I got? See how many? Oh, I got more than you. Oh, no, well, but mine were bigger and stronger. So they're, they're laughing, and it's, it's, it's good. And they come up to Jephthah's place. Now, Jephthah, when he's making the vow, again, realizing he's been impacted, seeing, seeing the other gods and having worshipped them alongside their own god, Probably expecting a servant to come up. See, today we would think, yeah, dog or something like that. But yeah, dogs were an inside thing. They were just curs. They were, you didn't have dogs as pets. So he's expecting a servant to come out first. Willing to do a burnt sacrifice of a servant. But to his horror, his absolute horror, his daughter, his only child is the first one out the door. Probably heard everybody laughing and singing and 
celebrating as they came down the road. And she has tambourine and she comes out singing and dancing, knowing that Israel's been successful, that God has been good. She wants to see her dad, her dad safe. She wants to be the first to give him a hug. And immediately Jephthah remembers his rash, impulsive vow to manipulate the Lord into helping him. Now he's got to tell his daughter what he's done. And I don't think he expected her response. Because it shows she does understand the importance of making a vow to God. That you don't go messing around and make a vow and then just easily break it. She turns to her dad and says, My father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me now as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites, Grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I'll never marry. How can the father say no to that request? And after two months, she returns and Jephthah did to her as he had vowed. He sacrifices her as a burnt offering. God has never, never demanded human sacrifice. And you may think, yeah, well, what about Abraham and Isaac? God provides the proper sacrifice. Isaac is never sacrificed. Deuteronomy 12, he says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in a fire as sacrifices to their gods. What we see is that Israel's becoming more like the nations around them than they even realize. Embracing their values and ways over the ways and, and values that God had given them. God gave them a whole set of laws and ways of living with God and with each other and with the creation around them to, to become a people that is so different that the other nations say, hey, there is something different about you. You live in ways that we can only dream of living. You found a way of living in peace with your God and with each other. And you even care about the nations around you. Remember the first time I read this story. As I'm reading it, my first thought was, would God ever allow Jephthah to actually go through with such a gruesome sacrifice? After all the times God told Israel not to do it? Some pagans do, not followers of God. So how can he let it happen? 
I realize I don't got all the answers. But I do know that God's the giver and protector of life. That's why we so strongly support the, the pregnancy center in, in Red Deer. And, and we want to help women and we want their families to, to be able to have their children and to raise them because life is precious. That's why we, we, we've committed ourselves to, to walking alongside other organizations in this city to, to help people to, to live that, that life is more than just surviving. We want people to, to experience fruitful Bountiful lives, to be able to, to realize their potential. Because life is more than just breathing. And God sees it as precious. And yet even Jephthah's daughter urges her father to honor his vow to God because God has saved Israel. She has this twisted picture of who God is. She doesn't understand God's grace either. And how can she when her father doesn't get it? She's more worried about God's wrath against her father, not understanding that God has no desire to see her sacrifice to him. Jephthah's daughter is willing to be sacrificed to save her father. She dies because her father doesn't understand his own God. Jephthah has been so influenced by the cultures and nations around him. He doesn't understand grace anymore. It's a sad commentary on Israel at that time. But how they've been influenced by the cultures and nations around them. Completely, fully trusting in God alone seems to be too big a step for them to make. I really appreciate Mark's focus on on repentance. That Israel was repenting. They were changing. They were trying to change. But as time went, it was easy for them to slip into the old ways of worshiping other idols alongside God again and again. And whenever that happened... Their picture of who God is got twisted. It got changed. Because culture is strong. This is why Jesus died on the cross to show us just how great God's grace is. How committed Jesus is to each one of you, to all of us. We get God's wrath at sin because he is a just and righteous God. We did rebel against him. We did disobey. We did listen to the voice of Satan instead of God. And we still do time and time again. But honestly, the hardest thing to the hardest thing to really accept in our hearts is God's unconditional love and grace. Because we live in a society and a culture 
where sin and brokenness is all around us, a, a world where many of us have experienced betrayals and hurt from friends and loved ones, a, a world where we're told that we get our value because of what we can do for you. We're not valued just because of who we are. We're told we're valued because of what we can do or be. So unless you're the most beautiful or the most gifted or the most skilled or, or, or the most intelligent or, or, or the most athletically gifted or, or whatever, you know what? you got to work a whole lot harder to be accepted because you don't quite measure up. And honestly, because society's values keeps shifting and changing, all of us at some time or another are not going to measure up. And then our society just turns their back on us or our friends, the ones we thought we could trust. We forget that we are precious simply because we're created in the image of God. A God who formed us with his own hands. A God who, who, when Adam was lying on the ground with no life in him yet, gets down on his knees and breathes his breath, the breath of life, his own spirit into Adam in a holy kiss, as one of the early church fathers puts it, to breathe his spirit into us to give us life. In his own image, with his own breath, we have life. And God says, how can I ever destroy something in my image? How can I never not love you? How can I never? How can I never give up on you? I can't give up on you. We give up on God, but he doesn't give up on us. That's why Jesus spends so much time teaching about and showing grace to the people he walked with during his time on earth. You see, people need to see grace in action before they can really accept it in their hearts. That's why the stories of the Samaritan woman at the well. A woman who comes at a different time of the day than everybody else because she's not accepted, she's rejected by her community. And Jesus treats her with respect, even though she's Samaritan and he's Jew and the Jews couldn't stand them. Jesus honors her, treats her with respect, and she becomes the first missionary. And the whole village becomes followers of Jesus. And then there's a woman caught in adultery. And they're getting ready to stone her, and they're mocking Jesus, saying, Hey, what did Moses say? As she's lying on the ground, they have stones in hand. And Jesus gets down on his knees beside her. Writes in the dust. He protects her. He honors her as someone created in the image of God. And when the people slink away with their tails between their legs, ashamed and embarrassed, Jesus lifts her up. He doesn't condone her way of life. 
He says, go and sin no more, but I'm not going to judge you. See, all your judges have left. But he loves her too much to allow her to stay in her lifestyle and says, go and sin no more. And then there's Zacchaeus. Nasty, dirty, thieving tax collector. And he says, I am going to eat in your house. I am going to bless your household with my presence. And he's changed so much. He says, for everything I took, I'm going to give 40 times more back. We need to see grace in action for it to soak in our hearts that this is who God is. But Jephthah and we live in cultures that don't get grace. Which is why when we partner with organizations like Broomtree and CAYU and FCSS and others who are, are, are walking alongside those that many of us don't see, they're walking alongside those who are hurt and broken, who may not have a place to live, who may not have anyone who sees value in them, but then they find people who do and we get to partner with them. We keep our doors open here during the week as much as we can so that people can find a place where they are welcomed, where they're accepted, where they can find hope and grace and help. Because the world needs more and more glimpses of grace so that they can understand who our God is. See, our culture who's moved so far away from God sees God as a wrathful God. Says, your God sacrificed his son on the cross and they don't get who Jesus is because it wasn't God who sacrificed Jesus. Jesus walked himself and says, I love you so much. I am doing this for you. My father doesn't have to make me. I am this committed to you. That's why we have to know the proper relationship between God and Father and Father and, and between God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That one doesn't force on the other. That they are so in union with each other, so connected to each other, that they make these decisions together. And there is no forcing. There is no one sacrificing another. Jesus walks to the cross on his own and God honors him by seeing us through his son so that we can know God's grace. In spite of Jephthah's failings and weaknesses, he shows up in the list of heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 as one whose weakness was turned into strength and who became powerful and rooted foreign armies. Another sign of God's grace. Jephthah, raised in a culture that has moved far from God, still looks to God for his blessing. His faith had may have been only the size of a mustard seed Yet God gives him his spirit to help him save his people. God uses him to save Israel. God accepts him, weaknesses and all. 
we can trust that God is a God of grace who has chosen us and never gives up on us, even in our times of doubt, even in our sin. He calls us to repent, to change, but he gives us his spirit so that we can change. Jesus loves us so much that he calls us to leave our lives of sin, to leave our other gods behind, to trust in him. And he gives us his spirit so that we can be more and more like him, so that we too can be a presence of grace in a world that aches for it. Amen. Father, this is still a hard story. Lord, we know who you are. And Jephthah reminds us of just how great your grace is. But it reminds us of how much this world needs to know you. Needs to know your grace needs to know that you don't give up. You keep sending your spirit. You keep sending your prophets. You keep sending us, your church, your people into the world to let them know who you are, to invite them to follow the Jesus path, to be given the spirit, to help them to know and experience and live our grace too. So Lord, may we never forget who you are. May we never accept our culture's picture of who you are. Help us to keep turning back to your word and to keep listening to your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.